Rwandan President Paul Kagame is in his third term of office after winning re-election last month. Kagame received a whopping 99% of the vote. His critics say he has held on to power through authoritarian means. Rwandan police has arrested Dan Shima Ruigara, a leading critic of uh, President Paul Kagame, charging her with uh, forgery and tax evasion. Her mother and uh, sister were also arrested on the tax charges. And welcome to the Global Inquirer. The Global Inquirer is an undergraduate research podcast that takes a look at case studies to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. I'm your host, Nico Marsage, and today I'm joined by Anna Von Spikowski. Anna, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, hi. Thank you so much for having me. I am a second year, and I am hoping to major in global security and justice. Yeah, so thanks for coming on. And our case study today is going to take us into Rwanda. And we're going to look at the current president, Paul Kagame, who has held power since 2003, to explain the larger trend of African presidents or leaders holding on to power for really long periods of time of over 10 or even 20 years. Um, and first, Anna, can you talk to me a little bit about who Paul Kagame is? So Paul Kagame's family were Tutsi refugees. So he grew up in Uganda. And he was a founding member of the Rwandan Patriotic Front who, out of Uganda, invaded Rwanda in 1990. This started a civil war that lasted from 1990 to 1994. Most people know this because in 1994, Hutus in the government started the genocide that lasted for 100 days. Around 800,000 Tutsis were killed. And it ended when the Rwandan Patriotic Front was able to take Kigali. So Paul Kagame was the general of the Rwandan Patriotic Army, and he was regarded as a hero. And he served as the Minister of Defense until 2003, when he was elected president. This marked the end of the post-genocide transition period and the beginning of a new constitution. And so how has his rule looked as president since 2003? Like, what has been the general state of Rwandan, the Rwandan economy or the Rwandan political scene? So Rwanda, after the genocide, um, was decimated. And a lot of people looked at it in a similar way that people looked at Somalia and thought that it was a failed state. And Paul Kagame has really proven people wrong. He has been able to reduce poverty and increase economic growth in a way that development experts have really looked at Rwanda as a model for development. He's created a healthcare system that's looked at as one of the best in Africa and one of their achievements has been able to reduce child mortality in one of the fastest declines in recent history. So economically and socially, Rwanda has seen you know very large gains, but from a political aspect, what has been the effect of Paul Kagame as the Rwanda's president? Kagame's state is first and foremost an authoritarian state. There are other political parties, but they all must register to um, act legally in the country. And he has been known to repress dissidents, repress uh, political parties that push for democracy. Press freedom in Rwanda is almost non-existent. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just kind of curious, you know, Paul Kagame has been in power since 2003, so it's been roughly 15 years. How has he maintained control of the presidency for so long? So in the Constitution, 
presidents serve for seven years and they have a two-term limit. So he would not be allowed to run again um, after 2017. Now in 2015, 3.7 million people actually petitioned the government to allow him to remain in power for a third term. The Constitution was amended and approved by a referendum vote. They actually reduced terms to five years, but a provision allowed for whoever was in power at the time of the amendment to reset their term limits. So under this new constitutional amendment, he will be able to stay in power until 2034. And so post this constitutional referendum, Paul Kagame can stay in power for a lot longer until 2034. Has repression worsened in the country? You know, it's hard to say because so many journalists um, self-censor because they're afraid of being arbitrarily arrested. Paul Kagame, he's been arresting dissidents really since he came into power in 2003. You know, this is not a new trend in the past few years. In the 2010 election, Victoire Ngabire, who was the president of the United Democratic Forces and Kingi Party, was actually arrested before being able to announce um, her running in the 2010 election. So that's just one example out of many of people who are pushing for more democracy um, being arrested and repressed. Like we said, political repression is not new, and we definitely saw it in the 2017 elections that occurred in August. Diana Rugara is an accountant and human rights activist from Kigali. She's the daughter of a prominent businessman who died in a car accident in 2015. However, there have been rumors and speculation that government forces or Paul Kagame himself might have been behind his car accident. And she's been calling for an investigation into his death. She decided that she wanted to run as an independent against Paul Kagame. And as part of that requirement, she has to get a certain number of signatures to be able to be a candidate. She reported a lot of harassment as she was traveling around the country to get these signatures. Um, several of her representatives were actually arrested and threatened with treason charges before being released. She was eventually not able to complete her run for president because the government said that some of her signatures were invalid or some of them had been forged. So she kind of dropped off the map for the rest of the election. But at the end of September, about a month after the elections, her, her mother and her sister were arrested. Originally, they were for tax evasion on her family's tobacco farm. And for Diana herself, for forgery, going back to the signatures that she tried to collect for her unsuccessful bid. However, after they were arrested, the tax evasion charges were completely dropped and her sister was released. Her and her mother have been charged with inciting insurrection. She and her mother have been in custody. They have been denied bail, and they're still there um, as we're sitting here speaking today. She is facing around 20 years in prison if everything happens um, as we think it might. Right, and that gives a good example of what the state of political repression can be in Rwanda. 
Right. Many people don't think that she, you know, was actually trying to incite some sort of armed insurrection, right? She was really just calling for justice for her father. She was calling for greater democracy and um, a greater flourishing of civil society. And what's interesting about Pakagami in Rwanda is this isn't necessarily an isolated incident. Um, you know, Anna, you and I had the chance to sit down with Professor Fatan in the politics department here at UVA, and he had a lot to say about um, why why it's the case that a lot of leaders in Africa have maintained control of the presidency or just maintained control as political leaders for so long. Here's a cut from the interview. Ten of the 20 longest ruling national leaders are from Africa. Uh, can you discuss some of the preconditions that make these leaders able to rule for so long and or have been, been able to rule for so long in, in the region, in the continent? Well, those regimes have tended to be dictatorial. So that means that the person who's in charge would last a very long time till the dictatorship is gone. And usually dictatorship disappear only because the president dies or because there is a coup. And there are other ways you can do it too. You can have elections and be re-elected on a permanent basis, as it were. I mean, you have many African leaders who've done that. The elections are kind of fake elections. There is a fake opposition. And uh, the voting itself is quite fraudulent. Uh, The electoral process is one-sided. There is no access to the media, if you are the opposition, or very limited access. Uh, So there are different strategies, and you can also be very repressive. Uh, Many of those regimes have been very repressive, although they tried to uh, have kind of that type of uh, simulacrum of uh, democratization, whereby you you have the elections on a regular basis, you have political parties from the opposition, but... Uh, those people from the opposition are under surveillance or they are repressed and they don't have the means to really challenge the government. So those leaders have uh, found the ways to preserve their power. They control the state, control the police, they control the army, and it's very difficult to dislodge them. So we see some interesting parallels between what Professor Fatan was saying and the elections that just happened last year in 2017. Paul Kagame won 98.63% of the vote. And unlike the United States, Rwanda has extremely high voter turnout. So some people from Human Rights Watch, other organizations that did some research into the election, noticed that, for example, Voting officials signed ballots for people who didn't show up to the election. Donations in some districts were mandatory to the RPF, the Rwandan Patriotic Front. Some voters were required to vote in front of officials from the National Electoral Commission, which basically means that, you know, their vote wasn't secret. And security forces in the northern province, for example, went door to door telling people not to go to a rally of one of the uh, opposition candidates, Habineza. And now jumping back to the interview, Professor Vatan answers why so many individuals seem 
from our perspective, to at least be acceptant of the status quo. And so pushing on the topic of like elections and their importance in democratization, is it that a lot of the individuals in these countries are just, they just accept the status quo, or there are just no means to access any form of political protest or opposition? Well, political protests are dangerous if you're in those regimes, because you will be beaten, you could be sent to jail, or you could even die. So it's not that people are necessarily happy about those regimes, is that there's a very high cost uh, if, if you oppose uh, the government. Um, so there is that kind of apparent passivity, but it's just apparent. It's really because you have uh, significant coercive control on the part of the government. But then you have also uh, moments where the population, population is fed up. That doesn't mean that you're going to have a change in the government, but you've had in many of those regimes, uh, you know, weeks of protests, people going in the streets, uh, etc. But that doesn't mean that they have the capacity to overthrow the regime. And even when they overthrow the regime, that doesn't mean that you're going to get some sort of uh, democratic dispensation afterwards. In fact, in some situations, uh, the dictators who were displaced came back with elections. So it's not unheard of in Africa or for having you know, a, a democratic election and the dictator is uh, removed, as it were. But in the following election, that very same guy comes back and is elected. Mm -hmm. So, and many of the people who also in the opposition used to be at one point or another a member of the government. So there is kind of a complicity between uh, the members of the elites, uh, even if they are in the opposition and the government. I mean, you, you see that in many cases. See, you see that in uh, uh, the Congo, what used to be Zaire, you see that in Zimbabwe, you see that in Togo. So uh, there are different dispensations to keep power going. And then you also have passation of power from father to son. That happened in Togo, that happened in Zaire. Um, so that's the way the, those systems work. So if changing leadership or holding elections doesn't always bring about lasting change, can you walk us through some of the challenges to building democratic institutions that can last in the long term? It's a very complicated process because you need to have institutions that are quite strong uh, in, in order to have any type of elections that are really representative of what the population wants. Uh, and then you need uh, a system where uh, politics is not a zero-sum game. In other words, you're either in power or you're out. And if you're out of power, well, you lose not only political power, but your economic power, your positions, etc. So you need to have a system where politics is no longer conceived as a zero-sum game, where the opposition has a fair chance of winning the next time. So when they lose, they don't feel that they've lost power for, you know, a lifetime, as it were. Uh, and similarly, the, the, the parties that win should not look at politics as, as something that you grab, as they say, in, in many African countries. You know, you can't eat, literally eat power whole. 
if you do that, then that means that the opposition is not going to be tolerated and that therefore that you inevitably are going to have a, a dictatorship. So you need very strong institutions and many African countries don't have those institutions. There is also the link between the economy and politics when you have societies that are very poor. Uh, that means that uh, politics becomes a business. In other words, you, you want to be in politics so you can enrich yourself illicitly. And uh, that means, again, that at that point, politics is really a matter of survival. So once you are in a position of power, you're not going to relinquish that position. You're going to try to keep it uh, with whatever uh, means uh, you have at your disposal. Uh, on the other hand, there are pressures that have been built throughout Sub-Saharan Africa to make governments more accountable. Uh, so you have uh, pressures coming from students, from lawyers, from journalists, etc. What has been called in some ways civil society rising and trying to challenge uh, the powers that be. But even when you challenge the powers that be and even when you displace them, there is no guarantee that what is going to be... the people are going to be, the new rulers are going to follow a democratic path, per se. Uh, and even when I've said, even if you have regular elections, that doesn't mean that the elections are going to be really free and fair. Uh, you can have kind of fake democracies where you have all of the trappings of democracy, but the meaning of democracy is not very real. And do pressure from international bodies like the UN to try to encourage countries to further democratize? Like, does that actually help, or um, has that seen any yeah, potential? Well, I'm very cynical about those things. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, 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 the UN has very little power, really. Uh, and the major powers, uh, what they like is really stability. Now, if you have a democracy, so be it, but if you're going to have uh, a transition to democracy that entails significant instability, uh, most major powers don't like that, period. Uh, and you can see that in many cases. I mean, uh, and to be perfectly blunt, many of the Western countries, uh, the Chinese don't give a damn about whether you have a democracy or not. Uh, this is not their problem. They just want to do business with you. Uh, and the Russians, they don't give a damn either about democracy. They just want business. Uh, I would argue that the West doesn't give a damn about whether you have a democracy either, but it, it's more nuanced. Yeah, I found the those comments from Fatan really interesting that in the case of a lot of Western countries like the U.S., it might be in their best interest to simply keep these leaders in, in power to min maintain stability. And so this isn't necessarily like promoting democracy as we might think the, the U.S. actually does, but in fact you know, encouraging leaders to stay in power just to ensure that there is some level of stability in a lot of these African countries. Well, the United States does have a strong relationship with Rwanda and with Paul Kagame himself. President Trump just in the end of January this year met with Paul Kagame and reaffirmed their partnership, you know, reaffirmed their friendship especially when you look at what's happening in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, which is very close to Rwanda, competing rebel groups, 
including some Hutus that actually fled Rwanda after the genocide, it is in the United States' best interest to keep stability in Rwanda. And the way that they've been able to do it up until now has been to keep a partnership with Paul Kagame. Right, and to maintain stability at the expense of like democratic institutions, in essence. Right. Uh, and what's interesting next is how Fatong talks about this dichotomy between economic growth and people's acceptance of repression or political repression. And yeah, so bringing us back to like Africa as a continent, do you think that people are accepting to a certain degree of repression given that there is like uh, prosperous economic activity? Well, this is kind of a trade-off. You know, it's difficult to... I'm not quite sure that people really like repression <laughs> right, <laughs> just yeah. to have economic growth. But uh, you, you can have a system where there is economic growth, not necessarily a very repressive regime, but you know what are the limits of what you can do. Uh, and you have systems that work like that. I mean, Singapore, for instance, is one where you... And people seem to be perfectly happy. Uh, now, whether they want democracy, I don't know. It, it, it's difficult to tell when you have an authoritarian government. <laughs> but uh, this has always fascinated the political scientists and social scientists. If you have economic growth, uh, is that enough? I would venture to say it's not enough. Uh, but if you're living in an environment where all of the other regimes are more or less authoritarian, or even if they have elections, they are fake elections, uh, and they don't have economic growth, they don't have stability, then Kagame is appealing. Now, if you're in a different environment where you have working democracies, Kagame is not necessarily appealing. So it depends on your neighborhood. Um, but in the African context, uh, Kagame is not such a bad deal compared to the other regimes. So do you see... In the future, if Rwanda does transition to a less authoritarian state or if Paul Kagame does step down, um, do you see that transition as being able to keep the same level of stability and development that it has now? Well, I don't know. I mean, democracy is an interesting you know, beast because it can lead to stability, but it can lead also, if you have a very polarized political system, to great instability. Uh, and to have a democracy, opposition and government cannot be really completely uh, at odds. So in a weird way, democracies function when the parties that are competing for power do not uh, disagree on fundamentals. If you disagree on fundamentals, there's a real problem for democracy. In a weird way, then democracy means that you don't discuss fundamentals because this is very problematic. And in 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 uh, Rwanda, I mean, it's 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 really too early to tell whether the country can su sustain that economic growth, sustain that stability. Uh, ethnic conflicts have been contained, uh, but it's very clear that uh, the Tutsi are in charge. Uh, so you don't know what would happen if there would be economic discontent, particularly on the part of the Hutus, after the genocide that could generate another 
crisis. And this is one of the reasons that Kagame says you can't have, you know, disorder. Because once you have that, everything can fall apart. So you need to control the system. Tvitan says something interesting there. He said ethnic conflicts have been contained. So they've been contained, but they haven't gotten to the root of the problem. The trade-off between stability and political freedom is a debate that has been going on for a very long time. And it goes on, you know, in other authoritarian countries that we've seen. And it's hard to understand from our perspective what it's like living in Rwanda. You know, Hutus and Tutsis are living with maybe relatives who killed their own relatives. And Paul Kagame has been able to at least temporarily stop major conflict from breaking out again. But some people say that without outlets for expression, this really is just a stopgap. And eventually, we're going to see expression coming out in violent ways. And we can jump back to the interview now as Fatan goes further on to highlight how Kagame is a highlight among African leaders. And many African countries actually look at Kagame as the kind of example to follow because things seem to work. There is something about economic growth uh, and stability that is appealing to populations elsewhere. Uh, and also to obviously rulers. But Kagame is a very smart ruler. You may like him, dislike him, but he's extremely smart. Uh, And not all rulers are that savvy. So it may be a unique kind of phenomenon. There are very few cases where you can say you really have a democratic dispensation in Africa. Because it's not only that you need changes of government, but you need also a government that responds to the population. You need accountability. And there are countries that look like they are moving in that direction. For instance, Senegal, maybe Ghana. South Africa is arguably, uh, you know, a democracy too. But when you look at the level of inequalities in those societies, it's so massive that to call societies that have such degrees of inequalities democratic is also a problem. I mean, if you look at South Africa, it's more unequal now than it used to be under apartheid. But you have one person, one vote. So it's it's a difficult issue. Mm-hmm. If you want to have real democracy, you need need to talk about other things like responsiveness of the government, more equity, etc., etc. And in most African societies, you don't have that. It's not just in Africa, it's everywhere that the degree of equity in most societies is really very low, even in the industrialized countries now. Well, on that uh, bright note. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we didn't oh, well, was question. No, that's great. Thank you very much. No, I mean, I like the cynical, I have to admit. And that'll do it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to the episode. And uh, if you enjoyed it, please give us a rate and comment on iTunes. We really appreciate all the support. 
I want to thank Professor Vatan and Anna for coming on and doing the interview and all this great research. Next week, we'll have a special promo for the live event, which will be Wednesday, March 28th at 7 p.m. at Open Grounds. I hope you can swing by. I think it's going to be really cool as we discuss the merits of U.S. humanitarian intervention abroad. We hope to see you there.